0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Ju Bongchet, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Meg Rithmeyer, the F. Warren McFarland Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. Today, we'll be discussing Meg's recent work on China's evolving state capitalist model. Meg, thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Jude.
0: So your work has been really uh, influential on, on my thinking about China's evolving a political economic system. So I'm really excited for today's discussion. But I wanted to start by asking you if you can give the listeners a, a brief potted intellectual biography. And looking back at your first book, you've had a pretty consistent interest in, in understanding China's evolving political economy. So I want to ask you, how did you settle on this research track.
1: I finished my PhD in 2011, but I started it in 2004. And my first trips to China were in the early 2000s. And so that was such an interesting time in China. You may have been there yourself and remember the kind of feeling. It was You know, right before or as China was acceding to the WTO. China was getting the Olympics in 2008. And it was sort of also an interesting time because, you know, you travel throughout China and see with your eyes that China's growing, right? Like people are making things everywhere. Everyone you talk to has a scheme for getting in business or making money and, you know, making, taking advantage of new markets in different ways. And so it was just this kind of feeling that this country was taking off. And As a social scientist, none of what we expect for countries that take off existed in China in the 90s and 2000s, right? Other than like the kind of social stuff like education and a work ethic, right? And that kind of thing. But in terms of the institutions that most economists and political scientists think are requisite for economic growth, you know, contracts, property rights enforcement, that kind of stuff, it's not there. You may have associations with, you know, regime type and economic growth. Those did not obtain in China. And so the kind of puzzle of my my lifetime right has been and will always be how does it work how does it work that people in a system like this are nonetheless willing to take risks and make investments and you know do well for themselves how does it work right that the CCP stays in power just no matter what <laughs> it seems every time you know the people who trained me said oh you know it's going to fall after the cultural revolution or after something else you know and it's always changing and pivoting and so this question of you know profound economic growth despite the knowledge that we think we have in the social sciences of how things should and should not work and just the consistent adaptation and flexibility of the system those are the puzzles that that really have driven my research for a long period of time so as you say my first book was on land in china and so that was you know a perfect kind of distillation of that question which is We know that China does not have property rights over land, yet I look with my eyes and all I see is real estate. Everyone's getting into real estate, buying and selling buildings, buying and selling land. Chinese cities are growing at rates you know, unheard of in history or in other contemporary societies. And so how is that possible in a place where the property rights don't exist? And so, you know, instead, you know, what the the book makes arguments about how local and central, you know, leaders in China kind of experimented with land markets, what they learned during those experimentations, how it varied in different parts of China. And so the work I'm doing now is not on land, but is on capital. So how the Chinese financial and fiscal systems work and what, you know, different parts of those systems mean, right, for state power, for economic growth in China, for stability, for risk and all of those things. So I've moved kind of from like land to capital, but the basic questions are still the same.
0: And can I ask what, what was the impetus behind that shift over to over to capital, which is such a, a, a core focus of your work now, including sort of understanding the conglomerate structures and financing channels, what, what was it that events had shifted on the ground which moved you towards this?
1: So yes and no. So when, one interesting thing is that I, I the first trip I ever made to China, which was in 2000, I visited the Shanghai Stock Exchange and it was so exciting. We went on the bus, you know, and everyone said, oh, we're visiting the Shanghai Stock Exchange. And you think like, oh, I have an image of the New York Stock Exchange. I know what this is gonna look like, especially in this like really, really driven country and everyone was asleep you know with their heads on their <laughs> the heads on their hand, the classic China nap um, and it was, was like four people all asleep on the floor and you're like, how is this gonna work right you know so the economics the answer is that capital is a factor of production just like land is a factor of production and label and labor so I'm just moving on from one to the next. Um, but you know over in 2000 I mean so now the Shanghai stock Exchange does not look like that. it's not quite as sleepy as a place um, although it depends on the month and the level of crisis. But the point is, uh, just as China's land markets exploded, right, and from basically the the mid-1990s through the present, the capital markets have done the same. And there's been room for all kinds of interesting activity um, for private sector firms, for state firms, for everything in between in in the capital markets. And so I would say both on the ground and what we've seen, especially like in 2015, where it's like out of nowhere, there's a stock market crisis that seems to be incredibly important. And so... I was doing the research, you know, before 2015, but now we're starting to get hard evidence that it's the financial sector where things are getting very interesting politically in China.
0: Yeah, and I hope to return to 2015 because certainly for me, I had always thought the last important year for for really looking at shifts in China's political economy was 2008. But now it's clear that the, the lingering effects of 2015 are, are pretty profound, not only for the immediate impacts, but also structural shifts in China's financial system. There's two pieces of work that I wanted to talk about today. One is a, a published article uh, titled The Rise of the Investor State, that was co-authored with, with Chun Hao. And the other is your new working paper, very new working paper, which is uh, available up on your, on your website called uh, Party State Capitalism in China, which you wrote with Margaret Pearson um, and Kelly Tsai. I think certainly th- both these papers to me were paradigm shifts in how I was thinking about China, and certainly your, the argument in the Party State Capitalism piece really now sits at, a, I think, a, a really strategic level in shaping how folks will think about uh, China's uh, evolving economic model. So I wanted to start there and stay at that elevation of 35,000 feet. I wondered if, if, if you could walk me through the argument that you, Margaret and Kelly are making about why the, the old framing we had of, of China's economic system as state capitalist no longer fits the, the reality.
1: Well, thank you for that, it's very generous. And the, your assessment of the work. And it's worth saying, in case your listeners haven't already read your piece in the China Leadership Monitor, CCP Inc., that we've come to very similar kind of sets of ideas about the China political economy. And, you know, I think I'd like to think we've come to that place because we're all observing the same reality and making sense of it analytically. And so there's, you know, I won't bore your listeners with a debate about the differences between party state capitalism and CCP Inc., but, you know, the thrust of it is really the same. And we started, the three of us, by being sort of dissatisfied with state capitalism and the company China was keeping with people writing about state capitalism, thinking about state capitalism. So there's two different things that are part of that. So one is this kind of Ian Bremmer, <laughs> state capitalism. The new thing is, you know, this the role of the state in the economy And there are all of these treatments of that that put China in the same list as like Brazil or India, you know, or thinking back to developmental states like Japan and Korea, you know, that it's really about state intervention in markets. And, you know, I don't disagree that that does describe China, the state intervenes in markets. (laughs) But, you know, to put... Democratic countries that have growth orientations, you know, it's about economic growth or protection from multinational competition and enabling, you know, countries to rise up within the global division of labor. We kind of came to the view that that no longer really described the set of interventions that um, what I'll call the, the Chinese state, which I mean, the party state, right, has taken on in recent years. And it basically definitely does not appreciate what we think is the underlying logic of that, which I can get to later, which is not really about economic growth anymore. It's about a different set of objectives that I don't think obtain when you talk about India or Brazil, because those are multi-party democracies. And the second level of dissatisfaction was with kind of policy, you know, DC or public understandings of the Chinese state, where, you know, the whole idea is, well, this, you know, the state controls the economy. Well, it doesn't always control the economy, right? There are limits to that. There are places it controls a lot. And that kind of interesting question for us, you know, as social scientists, as academics who, you know, Margaret and Kelly have been researching Chinese political economy for decades, you know, me, not quite as long, but it's definitely, you know, motivated the three of us to look at this and say, okay, so what is the logic of control? It's not enough, right, to assume that the state has power over every firm, right? And so that, and that's the kind of, there's no difference between this Chinese state and any given firm, right? And that may be true in some way or in some hypothetical sense, but what is the actual reality of how much the state does control economic actors? How is it changing? And so we thought that the the traditional kind of idea of state capitalism, especially as it's been applied to China, has been looking at SOEs, state-owned enterprises, right? So in the recent trade debates, it's been a lot about that, you know, how much, how many subsidies are a state-owned enterprises getting, the fact that China still has kind of monopoly spaces where foreign firms or even domestic private firms are unable to compete, you know, for example, in finance and other places. But, you know, it's no longer just the state-owned companies, the companies that are majority owned by the Chinese state, where we see state intervention. It's in a host of other areas in the economy and other types of firms. And so we really thought that it was time for a, a larger interrogation of what that meant for the kind of practice of state direction in the economy and the underlying logic of it. And so that's kind of the origin of the paper.
0: You demonstrate that you've moved into this new paradigm of party-state capitalism by examining three prominent manifestations of this now unique model. One is party-state encroachment on markets. Second is blending of functions and interests of state and private ownership. And the third is the politicization of interactions with capital. I mean, you just talked... To some extent on some of these, but I wonder if we could go succinctly through those three buckets and if you could discuss a little bit. I guess to me the interesting thing is, and indeed it's clear in the paper that there's antecedents, of course, of all of these. Like the, the party didn't just spring out of nowhere in 2015 in China. So I guess what I would be curious to hear you you think out loud about is when did this tip over from being simply an amplification of pre-existing trends? to now something that is spilled over into you thinking this now deserves to be thought of as, as a um, new paradigm. So I guess just starting with party state encroachment on markets. So naive me, the party state has always been encroaching in, in markets to some extent, to some degree, at, at some volume level. In that first bucket, what, what's new here? And when did this reach escape velocity?
1: 2015. <laughs> no, sort of. That's sort of the <laughs> answer. Um, so let me just go through each of these elements, right? So you, so we talk about three things. So yes, party, state, encroachment on markets. And that has a couple of different manifestations itself, right? So one is you know, the increasingly important role of party cells and kinds of firms of all kinds. You've taught me a lot about that, actually. So that is an important you know set of criteria, and that seems new at least with getting you know all private firms it, that's always been on the books as we've discussed any you know any small firm or firm of certain size. I think it's three employers or more, something like that or it has to have a party sale, but now it's being enforced in a different way, and so we thought that was interesting. but really, what we're talking about is the investment mechanism which I've been interested in in other work, the published paper in studies in comparative and international development and so What that really is, is, you know, it used to be that we thought there was the private sector and there was the state sector, right? And so the state, you know, had kind of firms that it majority owned, whether it's the central state or different levels of local states in China. So, you know, Shanghai or Jiangsu or whatever. And then other firms were basically private enterprises. And yes, some of them had connections to the government and connections to the party, but they were, you know, they were privately owned enterprises, well, I literally in 2015, you get a stock market crisis, which scares the CCP a great deal, right? It scares the Chinese Communist Party. And they respond by trying to arrest the massive decline in market values of firms by basically buying large amounts of shares on the stock exchanges. And this process is so large and in scale that the CCP or the, the state, in various forms, right, becomes an owner in almost half of the firms that are listed in China. Small, right, you know, between like 0.5% and 2% of shareholding, but, you know, meaningful enough to control prices, control prices of shares, right, and also to give the state a role in corporate governance. And so other things are happening at the same time, where the state's saying, you know, we want 1% of technology firms or firms that are very important to China, right? And so What it did was transition from the private sector as a place of benign neglect, right? They do their thing. We do our thing. We monitor the division between the two to saying the state needs to be a monitor, a shareholder, a stakeholder in what private sector firms are doing. And so this mechanism of state investment is profoundly important, right, because it means basically that, you know, you have the, the CCP acting as a, as a shareholder, taking a role in corporate governance in some instances. But it also means that they have control over some prices. And so that seemed really important.
0: So to, I just want to unpack that a little bit. And I should say that for listeners who want to really drill down on the investor element or shareholder element of your, the paper with Chun Hao on the, the rise of the investor state, state capital in the Chinese economy is, is a great place to spend some time where I learned an, an extraordinary amount. But I wonder if you could unbundle a few things, because if you have a, a, state, a, a state investment entity taking 1%. Uh, of uh, investing 1%, what functional effect does that have? I mean, that wouldn't necessarily be shaping the way the company is thinking about a commercial decision, right? And that's quite distinct from corporate governance and party sales. So just in and of itself, Central Huijin or some some entity buys 1% in, in Rithmarco. So what? What does that mean?
1: Well, we don't know yet. So I don't want to overstate the confidence <laughs> with which we know, right? And there are a bunch of things that you know we're doing in terms of the research, like if a company does get state investment, does it have an easier time accessing bank loans and those kinds of things? Does it become more or less efficient, more or less profitable, more or less, you know, the revenues go up or down, right? So there are a bunch of things we can do. It's too early to really tell, you know, what kind of effect that has. But in the aggregate, it has the effect that I think is important, especially for understanding the logic of party state capitalism, which is that if the state itself owns, you know, one to 2%, let's say, of Half of the firms in the Chinese economy, then if there's a problem with aggregate prices, right? If there's a problem with the stock exchange, right? If there's a problem, right, with equity markets, then they can intervene quite substantially, right, to make sure that that crisis doesn't materialize or things don't go down too fast. You know, I'm not trying to say that all of the interventions they make are super effective ones. And in fact, I've written here and in other places about how some of the interventions end up being counterproductive. But the important thing is what you have, though, why do they do that? And so here is a really important distinction, I think, especially for D.C. listeners to understand, which is that we tend to think, right, especially in the United States, when we look at a company and we trace its ownership and we find state capital, aha, Here we have a company where the party state has invested and so what it's doing when it takes actions like investing or making some other commercial transaction, it's doing the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party. That's what it's doing. When in fact, the logic that drove the party state to invest in that company is to maybe monitor what that company is doing. So if you are a 1% shareholder, even if you don't get like a board seat or decisions, you do get reporting from that company of what its financials deals are. And a lot of what happened in 2015 and 2016 was the CCP was super surprised about what was going on in the financial markets. They had no clue, right? They were looking at some of the financial innovation. I'm using scare quotes. <laughs> that we, have, we have that in the United States too. And saying, we don't understand that. We don't understand some of these lending schemes. We don't understand the extent of margin lending. We don't understand the technology that's driving that. The P2P stuff has been bizarre for the CCP. So a lot of what they're saying is like, not necessarily that they want control, but they want monitoring capacity and insight into what they're doing. So, while the d c crowd reads it as the CCP is controlling you know this company like a puppet behind the scenes, what it actually is is this company has been doing a lot of stuff that the CCP finds risky and wants to basically have monetary or that they're taking some you know some small share as a way to control aggregate prices because basically, if you have a decline in market capitalization in this sector, it can have all kinds of externalities that it finds unwelcome in other places. so the logic of this intervention is not necessarily strategic or like planned in advanced. What it is is reactive and it's about risk management and, and it's about security rather than some kind of advanced plot to hide Chinese investments and then make forays into other markets. Not that that doesn't happen. That also happens, but those are very different phenomena.
0: I've got a few more questions, but I wanted to return back to this public-private demarcation because I think you raised some interesting points But of course, also, even if there is not a kind of offensive nefarious element to why the party may be making equity investments into companies, one of the things I want to circle back around to is just how should regulatory mechanisms at the multilateral level and in advanced economies, we can't do case by case. So how do we upgrade our regulatory apparatuses to be able to deal with this new blurring? I mean, you've seen in the case of Cepheus. The way you deal with it is essentially inbound investment grinds to a halt. But that to me is not an indication of CFIUS working well, quite the opposite. But I wanted to just linger for, for a couple points. One is just as you were talking, one of the things of being an equity investor in a private company, if you're the state, is, is you get additional access to information. One of the things that's just struck me, and, and I'm thinking now to one of the problems that the US NSA had is too much information right? We've just had this overflow of information. And so it's really hard to hone in on on the signal, or you've got so much information, it's de facto useless. And one of the things I'm struck with, or think about must be a massive problem for China's regulatory agencies is this information overflow. And so I just think about SASAC having the issue of, let's let's imagine Costco, the holding company has, I don't know, 30,000 subsidiaries. When you look out across the entire universe, How could even Costco holding company have any idea what a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a subsidiary is doing? So I don't have a really a question here and it's not even a particularly profound point. But when I just think about the conceit of central planning, even in a more upgraded, updated, modernized, slick version is still this problem of you have a a limited number of bureaucrats who can be eyes on the problem at any one time.
1: And you're always going to be reactive. Basically, you're always going to be reacting to the last crisis. We do that here, too. How do other countries deal with this? I'll get to it in just a second. I'm not sure I have anything great to say there other than don't overreact and don't misread things as data when they're not data. So what I mean by that is, you know, you can't say, oh, okay, well, now that I know that China has invested in this like regional real estate company that you know now i know that the central state has done that i know that it has a strategic thing so i can learn from that what china's strategic goals are so that would be you know example of not hearing data correctly and not understanding data and refining data correctly and so we tend to impute these motives in a way that's unhelpful for our own sketching out of what's going on and what's important it's not important to the united states if china is over investing in local real estate companies in order to keep jobs up like it's not like strategically important to the united states and so we shouldn't over read some data. But in terms of what, you know, what it means, the question you're asking is really quite profound, right? Because, and this is what I wrestle with all the time. So what you have in China is this constant dance between we have a lot of problems, what could solve the problems, right? In the Chinese financial sector. So this thing you you describe of 30,000 subsidiaries, right? So many Chinese companies look like that now, whether they're private, you know, or state owned, right? Whatever space they occupy have incredibly opaque corporate structures you know, super unclear corporate governance. And the accountability is really difficult, right, especially to minority shareholders. And, you know, look, who started it? Well, SOEs, right? Once you start listing them, so they have these corporate governance reforms, which are giving them kind of the veneer of being like modern corporations. But of course, we know the control rights, you know, sit with the SASAC. And so then other companies take that as a cue. And so you get then companies like h or companies like, Anbang, I think I'm being safe and naming those two, right, which also have these huge corporate structures, which are then shocking, right, to, so once, you know, basically, so take, you know, Xiao Jianhua. So once Xi Jinping found out that Xiao Jianhua, this banker who was kidnapped from Hong Kong in 2017 and the Tomorrow Group, right? Once Xi Jinping figured out, oh, he had licenses in the insurance sector and the banking sector and securities, none of those regulatory agencies were talking to one another and understood the extent of the financial manipulation. They're surprised by these things, so then they overreact to it. Okay, so what could they do, right, to have a system where you don't have to worry that much about amassing that much information and then dealing with it? Well, you have rule of law, transparency disclosures, but for reasons I think you and I understand, the CCP isn't willing to do that because it doesn't want to subject its own firms right, to the same levels of disclosure. And so the dance you see is this dance, right? The dance between I want enough privilege and I want enough maneuverability for myself and these kinds of firms, and I want enough innovation in my economy so that I do get Alibabas and I do get, you know, sure, Dali and Wanda's, I do get these firms that do something productive and and better the lives of Chinese people but I don't wanna have my hands off to such an extent that they generate risks that then I have to react to in ways that then generate more risks.
0: Just to linger on this public-private demarcation, because I think this is in many ways an instigator or catalyst for further decoupling. You're seeing that regulatory bodies in the EU and the United States are really struggling to deal with this. And even I think good faith observers just can't anymore say, with any clarity, no, this is a safe investment because this falls in the bucket of private. And and so I just want to hear you think through is China's likely not going to change its model. It sounds like the, the party state capitalist model you describe in the paper feels pretty entrenched and indeed feels like an evolution that makes sense given the broader political climate in China and certainly given that the Xi administration will be governing for the next 432 years this isn't going away. Um, Just off the top of your head, and I know know you've been thinking a lot about this, are there any heuristics or frameworks that you think we we could begin to evolve to allow us to make generalized decisions, right? Not particular decisions where we need to know everything about the firm's investment and ownership structure, because we don't have the time or resources to do that, but some sort of heuristics or frameworks that can allow us to say, okay, that, that level of state involvement, whether that's an equity investment or not, is, is probably more about, I don't know, employment stability or you name it, something relatively benign. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Look, I, I'm one of these people that I'm not going to say, you know, I, I will say we shouldn't overreact to everything the Chinese state does. It's not nearly as monolithic or strategic as people think it is, right? It's, it's a lot more like function and disaster and kind of catch as catch can when they're trying to figure out how things work. But that doesn't mean that the risks aren't real. Right. And something like the national security law, either the new one or the old one. I mean, like all of this stuff is real. So I I mean, this is beyond the scope of the paper. This is sort of in the realm of policy recommendations. And let me say two things about that. Right. One thing. And, you know, I heard Melanie Hart talk about this very convincingly recently is it you know, in my view, it's not about ownership anymore, but about sector, right? And so that doesn't make things easy, because, so look, I mean, are we in a sector where we have something that's dual use? Are we in a sector where we have something where we're working with a Chinese firm that may have access to some proprietary information on Americans or getting money from DARPA or something from the US government? If we're in that realm, then we do have to exercise some caution. But a lot of the time, we're not in that realm, right? And so when we're not in that realm, and a lot of the, you know, So the coordination that Chinese companies do with American companies, and they still do it, right, especially in manufacturing and things like that, are in sectors that don't have this kind of strategic importance. And so having a sector as a heuristic rather than ownership as a heuristic, I think is one way to go.
0: Practically speaking, that would mean if a company is a picture frame maker from Wenjo, we're not particularly concerned about if it has a party sell or or, or if there's a state investment company with a 10% stake in it.
1: No, I don't think it matters. And look, I mean, for the record, Cepheus is pretty good at that, actually, is figuring out what matters and what doesn't. As an example, all of the recent you know, hysteria around Chinese students in the U.S. and, you know, spies and, you know, on things that are of, you know, national security importance. And so I just finished Mara Wissenstahl's book, The Scientist and the Spy, you know, I mean, what business do Americans have working so hard to make sure that Monsanto's, you know, corn is like that to me? Sure. You know, that's a corporate espionage is, is not a good thing. And I, I am <laughs> at the Harvard Business School. I think it's a terrible thing, right? Violation of property rights. On the other hand, it's not a national security issue. What a Chinese agricultural company does, I mean, it's a problem, it's a violation of our laws, and those laws, right, have to be enforced. But to escalate everything to the level of national security, that catches a wider net than what we actually need. And of all things, we do need cooperation with China on science, right, both both for solving, oh, I don't know, global pandemics, but also for addressing things like climate change. And look, I mean, the new legislation, ECRA is doing that, figuring out what's critical technology, what's funda- you know, foundational technology. And, and my plea when I talk to our alumni all the time and my students is that that is going to have to take input and intervention from industry. Because the U.S. government doesn't know, right? We need people in venture capital to be able to tell D.C. this is what is and is not foundational technology, critical technology. We need people who are working in science to do that. And so the more that there's this huge chilling effect over if you even say you want to work with China, I'm suspicious of you, then I think that's kind of a dangerous thing. The second thing I will say is that, you know, everyone loves talking about CFIUS bans and making like hard rules. Most of the action that goes on with CFIUS is in mitigation, right, which is not publicly disclosed for good reasons. And so there are things short of saying we're not going to work with Chinese firms or this firm isn't allowed to invest in the United States, instead saying, okay, there has to be American ownership over this set of data or over this segment of the business. And we see that very effectively. And I don't want to see that demonized. And so I'm afraid that any investment from China will become so political that anyone who approved it is, oh, CFIUS is being too soft, right? In fact, those mitigation agreements are incredibly important to both preserving the U.S. being open for foreign direct investment and global collaboration and making sure that our interests are protected. And so it's not we shouldn't think in terms of bans. We should think in terms of procedures. And yes, CFIUS does do that on case by case, right, which is onerous. But I think it's worth it.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that the needle that has to be threaded here is. The way that we will stay integrated with China is only when we evolve institutions and practices that allow us to deal with the, the China as we're confronted with now. Because if we don't kind of advance our own institutional evolution and put resources behind figuring out how to sort through some of these vexing issues that spin off of China's model, then I think more pressure will build for more full decoupling. The thing I was gonna say in national security, Um, I have a slightly different take from you, but that's a different story. I think what I do agree with what you said is if we can't prioritize, then true national security suffers because we we just have resource scarcity and bandwidth scarcity. And so we need to be able to say this is what we're going to put our shoulder into protecting with significant resources behind it. These are things while we recognize their importance, we, we can't enforce everything with the same level of alacrity all the time.
1: You know, you're right. And we're often given two versions of China. One is like, oh, you know, eventually they'll coalesce to an American model, which was never true and never made sense. Or this evil hundred year marathon thing. Neither is true. And what we need is like a little bit of sobriety and an understanding of how the system works. The big takeaway of our paper, I think, other than, you know, the logic of the system is different, is that the system does not work such that Beijing has unfettered control over everybody. There's pushback within the system, right? My question I started out with in this podcast, right, which is like, how does China grow? Why are entrepreneurs willing to take risks? Well, because they feel safe in doing so. And if they have to you know, say certain things about Xi Jinping, or if they stand the risk of having an IPO canceled for reasons that they don't think are fair, right? People don't take those risks anymore. And so the point of our paper is not to say it is a totally fused state society system where Beijing is in control of everything. The point is to say, there are real costs to what they're doing right now. We don't always get to see the evidence of those costs because the system is opaque, but it would be a mistake to assume that they're controlling everything and we should be more attentive to the limits.
0: This is a point where maybe I see see it slightly different. I'll just, I'll, I'll make one little comment. Yeah. I agree with you that if the model is Xi Jinping is sitting in a bunker, twisting dials, pulling levers, that's absurd. I do worry that because folks are frustrated with that framing of it, we go to this other framing, which is like, it's a total SHIT show, everything's uncoordinated, because the point is, even in this decentralized ecosystem model that exists here, even if Beijing isn't controlling every entity at every day, the point is, it now has enough interlinkages into companies that it can at the margin shift behavior. We can see that it can use some of these entities in foreign countries as hosts essentially when it wants to engage in nefarious activity. The problem for us is we don't know where the dividing lines are in any of these things. And so I think there's one threshold question we have to say, are we gonna remain integrated to some extent with China or not? If we are, then this is really about how do we really up our game to mitigate even if this new demarcation of public-private has, as I think you're arguing, and I certainly believe, the old demarcation is irrelevant and gone. So we now need to start thinking about frameworks so we can triage, to mix my metaphors here, we can triage a greenfield investment from a fuyao glass. I'm not going to spend much time on And Frankly, right now, we need the money and the jobs.
1: We should welcome it with open
0: arms. But I think the price China has to pay for this new party state model that you described, and as Kelly has has argued in a different piece, its international development space will be constricted because now I do think technology firms, companies in bioengineering, I mean, there's a whole host of sectors where I think China can't have its cake and eat it too if it has looked to military civil fusion and the growth of the party and...
1: And it's generated its own backlash. I mean, and that's the thing. It's generated its own backlash. And so in a lot of places, you know, you find countries now that are like, I'm not so sure I want Belt and Road Investment or I'm not so sure I want Chinese financing or Chinese 5G, whatever. And so let that stuff play out rather than try and counter it all over the world. But But I agree with you. And, you know, one place I think... We can, I don't want to say meet in the middle because I think actually we put, we agree on way more than we would disagree, but is that, you know, one thing we need to understand is that yes, it's neither a total, Free for all, nor is it strategic, but it is experimental, and China does learn along the way. And so we have to understand when they are learning, and we have to make sense of that, right? So when they learn, for example, oh gosh, lending to countries with strongman dictators who are nonetheless kind of subject to elections, right? That's a bad thing. We have to learn that rather than continuing to say the same things about debt trap diplomacy that were never true in the first place. So, I mean, that's a different kind of set of work. But the point is, like, we have to be attentive to how China. China is experimenting and learning, and what they're and what they're adapting and figuring out along the way, rather than assuming that everything they're doing is cooked in advance. It's not. It's deeply improvised.
0: Sort of pulling together all the threads of what we've talked about here, and especially some of the the paradigm shifts that you and your co-authors have described in these papers. Are we seeing the blossoming of a new coherent economic model that we will call party state capitalism? That that is just the system we will be dealing with. Is this a liminal state where we're transitioning from from one system to another? Putting on your your future glasses or your or your uh, crystal ball. Where does this party state capitalist system go?
1: Well, no one who ever gives those answers on China is ever right, and so I'm cognizant of that. I think my co-authors and I do think that the system that we describe, party state capitalism, which has as as its core logic, you know, security, domestic security, international security for China. I think that that is what we're going to be dealing with for the short term um, and maybe the medium term for sure. And by short and medium term, I mean like the next half decade to decade. I mean, there's such insecurity in the Chinese regime in terms of domestic financial risks, domestic, you know, political risks that kind of focus on social stability and focus on limiting, you know, risk domestically is an obsession. And then as it applies internationally, you know, the same, right, making sure that China's supply chain resilient, that China can get that access to resources, whether they be high tech or carbon, right, that they need to grow. And so that is kind of where we are, I think, for the medium term. But you know, the way I see the reform period in China in general, or even you know the history of the PRC, and, you know, I'm constantly refining my views, as any good academic should, but I think, you know, is basically this dance over and over again, which is we have this goal of developing in some way, right? And you can even see continuity from the Maoist period to the reform period in this way. We want to be prosperous, right? We want to be a prosperous society. We're going to try it one way, and it's not going to work. We'll try it another way well we'll do this for a little while and it generates these problems then we have a new way of solving those problems and they generate problems of course on their own and so i would say that i i don't think of party state capitalism as like some sort of eternal equilibrium mostly because it's very hard to have entrepreneurs who are willing to take risks and do innovative things it's very hard to plan a technological revolution it's very hard to plan quantum uh, you know which i don't understand <laughs> it's very hard to plan you know in advanced semiconductors because that's the kind of stuff that ends up happening in garages and dorm rooms with random women and men, right? And MIT down the street from me or in Silicon Valley. And that kind of energy is very hard to plan and it's very hard. I mean. Jack Ma was quite, how to say, brazen, but he wasn't wrong, right? Which is that you can't have a financial system that allocates resources without having any risk, right? Otherwise, you, know, you just can't have it. So if your risk tolerance is so low, then you're gonna get some stagnation. And so my view is that eventually, I'm, you know and maybe this is optimistic, that they'll decide actually letting the brakes off just a little bit will be good in some ways and having some innovation in some private sector. I mean, that has been the history of China especially during the reform period where it's like, well, you know, we'll try a few things, then we get nervous about that, we pull the reins back in, and then we liberate them a little bit more. And I don't think that this is like an end to that. I think it's just a new stage of it with new manifestations that we're trying to describe. But this is our world for the next five or 10 years, I think, barring some totally exogenous shock, as we say in social sciences, but barring some, you know, extreme shock.
0: Well, Meg, first of all, thank you for being very generous with your time. Folks who are, who are interested in the two papers I mentioned, I, there's a lot more that Meg has written. I didn't even mention your Varieties of Outward Chinese Capital working paper, which I also think is, is incredibly interesting, can go to uh, Meg's faculty page at the Harvard Business School, where for those who don't want to spend the $7,000 subscribing to studies in comparative international development, can find a working paper version, uh, which they can read for free, which I highly recommend. But Meg, thank you very much for your time and for joining the podcast.
1: It's a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog